I think gerrymandering is, uh, is the basis of what takes place. Even Ronald Reagan didn't like gerrymandering. Don't tell Republicans. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It certainly is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on KSO, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. As well, we also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and many other fine affiliates blanketing planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. And so, we meet again. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. We've got some breaking news here as we go to air today, but um, happily, it's not as horrible as so much of the breaking news that tends to happen right before airtime. Well, okay. So there's that. There's some, right? some good issues. Things are news. already looking good. Hello, Desi Doyen. How are Hi. you holding up today? Doing okay. All right. Uh, yeah, so it's actually um, not terrible news, though it is not as good news as many folks might see it as. In uh, normal times, I think this might be seen as potentially very good news. These are not, however, normal times. So you're saying there's a dark lining to that cloud? Kind of. Oh. Or a less than bright lining, as it appears at first. Uh, in any event, uh, folks may be seeing the headline uh, that a federal court has struck down Kentucky's new Medicaid work rules. That's good. But I would uh, caution uh, that people, well, people should be cautious uh, before celebrating too much here for uh, at least two reasons. But let's let's start with that breaking news in any event so people actually understand it. According to The New York Times, a federal judge on Friday blocked Kentucky's closely watched plan to require Medicaid recipients to work or volunteer or train for a job as a condition of coverage for Medicaid. Federal Judge James E. Bosberg of the Federal District Court for the District of Columbia, who is an Obama appointee, he ruled that the Trump administration's approval of Kentucky's scheme was, quote, arbitrary and capricious 
because it had not adequately considered, among other things, whether the plan would actually, quote, help the state furnish medical assistance to its citizens, which, the judge notes, is the central objective of Medicaid. So Medicaid is not meant as a job program. It's not meant to encourage people to go find work or to get better jobs. Since most of the people, by the way, who have Medicaid or are already working. But Kentucky's scheme would require Medicaid recipients to do much more. They would have to pay monthly premiums, some of them. So even if you had a job, you would still have to come up with the money to pay these monthly uh, premiums, which they may not be able to afford. And that is even if they are already working. All of this. Uh, requiring folks to work, etc., is decidedly not what Congress meant when they passed Medicaid or its expansion under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So uh, for 50 years since the passage of Medicaid, um, it has been for health care. It has not been to somehow encourage people to go to work or to change jobs or anything like that. Congress meant to help People have health care. It's a social safety net program. So, you know, we've got these Republicans and Supreme Court justices who are uh, now pretending that they are most concerned about what what did what did lawmakers mean when they when they passed a certain uh, measure? What was exactly what, what did the founders have in mind when they said certain things in the Constitution? Well, clearly, when Medicaid was passed 50 years ago or when the expansion of Medicaid was passed, it was not passed as a job program. That was not the point of the legislate legislators who passed those laws. So the judge says this is completely inappropriate to add these new requirements. And in this case, they did no, uh, no investigation, no study whatsoever to determine that somehow this would improve Access to health care for people, which is the objective of Medicaid. But this idea that, uh, you know, we should uh, follow the, the laws as they are actually written. Well, that's something that Republicans only seem to care about in certain cases. Yeah, they only care about it when it when it manages to uh, down to their Help benefit. Them. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, when they're just talking about it and then behind their constituents backs, they go ahead and do what they wanted to do. In well, the first place. Exactly. Anyway, it's and just words. So basically, the judge said that what uh, the uh, Trump administration here is doing is rewriting the the law. So, yes, it's a movable standard, it seems, uh, for Republicans these days, uh, unless you think Medicaid was somehow meant to uh, encourage people to get jobs. But there are uh, several reasons here. So this is good news uh, from the uh, from the federal courts, but several reasons to not get too excited just yet about Judge Boesberg's ruling here. Uh, the ruling in the Kentucky case is the first on this issue, but it will almost certainly not be the last. Uh, there are several other states where this is uh, also being done. And the question, of course, may wind up, almost certainly will wind up, before the U.S. Supreme Court, a more right-wing U.S. Supreme Court that will, by the time this gets there, uh, most likely be uh, have two now, count them, two extreme Donald Trump appointees, unless... Democrats can figure out how to uh, put the brakes on that somehow. 
For now, there are three other states which have also already received permission from the Trump administration to impose work requirements on Medicaid. Seven more have asked for clearance to do so. Moreover, uh, Kentucky's Tea Party governor, Matt Bevin of Kentucky, a uh, vocal opponent, a Republican, it goes without saying, and a vocal opponent of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, has said that if if he loses this case in uh, in the courts, he will simply end the Medicaid expansion entirely in Kentucky. So either do it my way with these work requir- requirements that have nothing to do with law, or we will take health care away from hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians. Do it my way, or the poor people get it. And by the way, the poor people were going to get it anyway, even if this measure was allowed to move forward. It was set to begin on Sunday, and it would have uh, it's estimated that it would have resulted in some 264,000 Kentuckians losing access to health care in the next month alone. Requiring Medicaid recipients to work and to pay monthly premiums, which is uh, also part of the Kentucky plan, would significantly reduce the number of people with coverage in the state. Many experts predict uh, that either because they will be uh, deemed able to work but are not working or or to volunteer but will not volunteer or because they don't keep up with their premium payments or provide documentation every single month to prove that they worked the required 80 hours. So it's not enough that you're working. It's not enough uh, that you're paying the premiums. This extra burden on those who are already working uh, to stay alive, but they're not making enough to afford health care, even under Obamacare, uh, they would now have to start proving month after month after month that, yes, they are working 80 hours each month. So this is your Republican Party today. This is in Kentucky, where the Affordable Care Act, uh, which they called um, Connect down there, is actually wildly popular Uh, Even though many in the state don't realize that it's actually Obamacare. They just put that state name on it, Connect, K-Y-N-E-C-T. It was put in place, by the way, by the previous governor uh, before Matt Bevin. It was put in place by a Democratic governor in the state. It was very, very popular. uh, But Matt Bevin, the uh, Tea Party guy, came in and uh, basically wants to kill all of it. This is your Republican Party today, and this is in Kentucky where the Affordable Care Act is, you know, very popular, wildly popular, even if they don't realize that it's Obamacare. Just another part of the Republican war on its own voters. Yeah, no kidding. And also, am I wrong? But it doesn't seem like this is going to create any jobs at all. So how do you prove you're working 80 hours a week if there are no jobs that you can get because there are no jobs to get? <laughs> I know. No, it's, it's just punitive. Yeah, it's, it's just punitive. It's, it's punishing just, uh, the poor. Just to be mean. That's what they do. They do it to their own people. And what gets me more than anything is these people call themselves Christians. We're uh, seeing something similar also uh, in play from uh, Christian Donald Trump's trade wars against friends and foes alike. Republicans in the House and Senate could prevent in an afternoon. They could stop this. They could put an end to Donald Trump's 
ongoing uh, and increasing trade war if they wanted to in the Republican-controlled House and the Republican-controlled Senate. They could just pass legislation to require congressional approval for trade tariffs, but they ain't doing it. Even as uh, it's now starting to cost American jobs and even if many Republicans pretend that they are against what the president is doing. I don't know if you've noticed, by the way, but over the past uh, two weeks or so, since mid-June, since Donald Trump's tariffs began kicking in, the, the Dow Jones average has dived about 1,300 points or about 5%. So the markets have certainly noticed what's going on. It's unclear if Trump supporters, most of whom do, do not actually have stocks or pay attention to the daily markets, unclear whether they have noticed. But they may start noticing soon once they start losing jobs. We talked uh, a week or so ago about how Retaliation against Trump's tariffs on imported steel and aluminum are already hurting the nation's farmers, many of whom were big supporters of Trump back in 2016, particularly in key states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, where GOP ad GOP advocacy groups are now actually running ads against Trump and his escalating trade war. Those farmers, as we reported uh, a week or so ago, are taking a big hit. While China, Canada and China and other nations are placing their own tariffs on U.S. crops or stopped importing them altogether. And now we have news uh, this past week of more damage inflicted on Americans from Trump's extreme uh, trade policies. The first casualties of President Trump's trade war are apparently 60 workers at Mid-Continent Nail. This is America's largest nail manufacturer. They lost their jobs last week at a factory in a part of Missouri that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. The whole company, according to its owner, could now be out of business by Labor Day. This is a potential game changer in Trump's trade strategy. Washington Post's Heather Long argues at the paper's Wonk blog, especially if it marks the start of more companies announcing layoffs. On Monday... Uh, Harley-Davidson had said it will be moving some production offshore because of the trade war. Europe had hit Harley with a 31 percent tariff in response to Trump's steel tariffs against Europe. So to be clear, a 31 percent tariff means essentially that people in Europe will have to pay 31 percent more to buy a, an American-made Harley-Davidson. So that's going to hurt Harley-Davidson. So they're moving some of their production uh, elsewhere to try to avoid those tariffs. But that means that layoffs may also be ahead for American Harley-Davidson workers in, yes, Paul Ryan's Wisconsin. The Trump administration has argued that these tariffs will save jobs and that the cost to America will be minor. But now we've got uh, some real job losses here and uh, a human face for the pain that many trade experts are warning about and saying could get much, much worse. Worse, the uh, political pressure on Trump to stop the tariffs, especially on America's allies uh, like the European Union, Canada, Mexico and so forth. That is likely to escalate, says the Post in Missouri, a state with a very close U.S. Senate race this year. Those layoffs are already becoming a hot election issue at that nail company. Senator Claire McCaskill is uh, visiting the nail plant, I believe, today. 
Mid-Continent Nail blames the layoffs squarely on Trump's tariffs. The company says that all 500 employees could lose their jobs by Labor Day and that the next round of cuts could come any day now. The trouble started at the end of May, apparently, when Trump put this 25% tariff on steel imports, steel coming from Mexico and Canada. Mid-Continent had been importing steel from Mexico that their American workers would then use to turn into nails. But after the tariff, the company had to hike their prices, customers fled, and now orders are are a mere 30% of what they were a year ago, said the vice president of sales, George Skerich. Not 30% off what they were last year, but a mere 30% of what they were last year. In other words, a 70% drop. There you go. Good math. Uh, He he says uh, the uh, vice president, Skerich, says that he suspects many customers are now buying Chinese nails instead. Hey, that worked out well, Mr. Trump. Well done. Make China great again. Jesus. There's uh, a lot of uncertainty and a ton of fear in Poplar Bluff, says Skerich. That's the home to mid-continent. And I should note here that Poplar Bluff, Missouri, is not far from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, which is the original hometown of Rush Limbaugh. Just to, if that gives you any idea of the the area that we're kind of talking about here in rural Missouri. Skarish says he voted for Trump. He says he's disappointed and sad at what's happened to a town and a company that he loves. Uh, if he had a minute with uh, Trump, Skarish says, according to the Washington Post, he'd tell him that these tariffs aren't hurting China. They're hurting Missouri. Workers who lost their jobs uh, in mid-June were contract workers, middle-class jobs in Poplar Bluff, where the median income is about $31,000 a year. The Tax Foundation predicts 48,500 job losses from the tariffs that Trump has already enacted on imports of washing machines, solar panels, steel, aluminum, $50 billion in Chinese products, And that figure would soar to, according to the Tax Foundation, would soar to more than uh, 250,000 job losses if Trump moves forward with uh, tariffs on another $200 billion of Chinese products, as uh, Trump threatened to do a few days ago uh, in response to China retaliating here. The uh, Wonk blog notes that the longer the tariffs are in place, the more companies are likely to have to make cuts Experts have warned Trump that the tariffs are likely to cause more job losses than jobs saved, and the early signs of that are now starting to play out in small towns south of uh, my old hometown of St. Louis. That's not the only uh, place where this is uh, going to uh, start causing problems. General Motors warned on Friday that if Trump pushes forward with another wave of tariffs, as he's threatened, that the move could lead to less investment, fewer jobs and lower wages. And yes, by the way, there are some GM plants in Missouri as well. The automaker said that tariffs on imports of cars and car parts could drive up prices by thousands of dollars and the hardest hit vehicles said in uh, GM said in comments that were submitted to the Commerce Department are often the ones bought by consumers who can least afford it. Demand would suffer. Production would slow, all of which could lead to a smaller GM, they said. 
So uh, this could get worse and worse. And I know that uh, this is something that very few people are talking about because we're all distracted with his uh, terrible border policies, the what's going on at the Supreme Court. But there's some very real stuff, some rumblings that are happening to this economy that could see the bottom drop out if uh, Donald Trump is is not stopped here somehow. Just more reason for folks to put the brakes on this administration, uh, including folks that once supported Donald Trump. Whether enough of them show up to vote this November to change the balance of the House or Senate, that's still the question of the year. And over the past two weeks, the Supreme Court has made has made that somewhat harder. Uh, no matter how many more voters may show up to vote for Democrats, Democrats may actually still not be able to take back the U.S. House. With the announcement of Justice Kennedy's retirement, the fight to restore uh, U.S. House and state legislative voting districts that actually represent the people who live in them, rather than the partisan majorities who drew the maps in the first place, that fight may have just gotten much more difficult. We'll be joined by the National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause, whose case to have all of North Carolina's U.S. House districts tossed out and redrawn in a nonpartisan way before 2018. That was a successful case until it reached the U.S. Supreme Court. And over this past week, that ruling to draw new U.S. House districts before 2018 well, it didn't get killed, but it got sent back down uh, to the federal uh, appeals court. So that ain't happening for 2018. We'll be joined by the national redistricting manager at Common Cause who brought that case next on the broadcast to discuss that and where this fight to end partisan gerrymandering even can go from here. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, I think it was, we played some audio from the Republicans sainted President Ronald Reagan back in 1988, describing those politicians who favored trade wars as demagogues who were cynically waving the American flag. Sound like anyone you know? It's not just on trade on which the uh, GOP has moved far to the right of their beloved Ronald Reagan. If they had an ounce of intellectual honesty, I suspect they'd probably have to call Reagan an anti-American Marxist or something at this point compared to what has become of their party. By way of one more piece of evidence there along those lines, here's Ronald Reagan decrying gerrymandered voting districts way back in 1988, side by side with Barack Obama in his 2016 State of the Union address, saying almost exactly the very same thing. I think that this is a great conflict of interest. 
to ask men holding office, elected from districts, to change the lines of that district to fit the new population. I think gerrymandering is, uh, is the basis of what, uh, basically what takes place. I think we've got to end the practice of drawing our congressional districts so that politicians can pick their voters and not the other way around. By the way, uh, that was Reagan in 1988 calling it gerrymandering because it was a term coined after the Massachusetts legislature way back in 1812 drew a map with uh, districts in which uh, one was so ridiculously drawn it looked like a salamander in support of the Democratic Republican Party candidates of uh, Governor Elbridge Gary over the Federalist Party at the time. So combining Elbridge Gary and salamanders, Reagan is technically correct to call it gerrymander, though most of us call it gerrymanders by now. But he was definitely correct, along with Obama, about the idea that state legislators shouldn't be able to pick which voters will be able to vote on their own re-elections. The U.S. Supreme Court has, at least in previous years, found certain gerrymanders based on racially divided redistricting, which suppress minority voting power, to be unconstitutional and a violation of the Voting Rights Act. That changed at least a little bit this past week, at least for several state legislative districts found by federal courts to be racial gerrymanders drawn by Republicans in Texas. In just one of the Supreme Court's recent disturbing five to four rulings by its stolen GOP majority, they approved those districts that just prior to swing vote Justice Anthony Kennedy announcing his retirement. And then there are partisan gerrymanders where parties create state legislative and U.S. House maps in a way to give the party drawing them outsized power over the minority party in question. Since 2010, as you know, that has largely been Republicans who have drawn extreme partisan gerrymanders in any number of states. While the Supreme Court has determined racial gerrymanders can be unlawful, they have yet to rule on whether strictly partisan gerrymanders are unconstitutional. They had several opportunities this past term to finally make a determination on that, but they didn't. Two weeks ago... The Supremes punted back two separate cases to lower courts, one in which a federal appeals court found Wisconsin's entire state legislative map needed to be redrawn because it was unfairly preventing Democratic voters from having their voices heard. And they also sent back a case in Maryland where Democrats admit to having redrawn a Republican U.S. House district in order to flip it to uh, to a Democrat. And then... This past week, five years to the day after the decision in Shelby v. Holder in which the Supreme Court gutted a key provision of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the stolen court celebrated by not only striking down the rulings against those racial gerrymanders in Texas, but the court also sent back a federal appeals court ruling in North Carolina, which had ordered the state's entire U.S. House map to be redrawn in time for the 2018 midterm elections after the entire map was found to be a partisan gerrymander. Republicans in the state even admitted as much. North Carolina State Rep David Lewis, a Republican member of the North Carolina General Assembly who drew the map, said, quote, 
I think electing Republicans is better than electing Democrats, so I drew this map to help foster what I think is better for the country. I propose that we drew I propose that we draw the maps to give a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and 3 Democrats because I do not believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and 2 Democrats. Well, Lewis's strategy worked as designed. The GOP won 10 U.S. House seats to the Democrats' three in the 2016 election, even though statewide the narrowly divided swing state chose Democrats for both governor and attorney general in that same year. But hey, at least it wasn't a racial gerrymander in North Carolina, right? The SCOTUS decision to punt the appeals court ruling back down so the North Carolina U.S. House map can't be redrawn before the crucial 2018 midterm election, as the uh, appeals court had ordered, was a huge blow to the earlier victory of the challengers in Common Cause versus Rucho, regarded by many as the case that could finally put an end to extreme partisan redistricting once and for all in the U.S. And now with Justice Kennedy out, even if the case returns to the Supreme Court next year, they could rule 5-4 to four under a new, even farther right court, that partisan gerrymandering is perfectly lawful and constitutional, as Kennedy was very much thought to have been the one who could finally vote with the court's liberals to end the practice. Here to explain what all of this means and doesn't moving forward and where the fight for fair voting districts stands now that Kennedy's uh, leaving the court is Common Cause's own national redistricting manager, Dan Vicuna. Dan, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I, I, I wish I could say congratulations on Common Cause versus Rucho, but uh, I guess uh, I guess we can't this week. Can you explain what actually happened to that North Carolina case this week? Because I know many saw it as a very clear-cut case that might finally allow the court to deal with partisan gerrymandering once and for all. Under under what premise did the uh, s- as stolen 5-4 to four majority, as I call it, uh, punt the case back down to the federal appeals court this week? Well, it starts with a, di- a different case, the case you mentioned, Gilby Whitford, the challenge to Wisconsin's mm-hmm. assembly map. Um, in that case, you know, as you, as you described, the court uh, punted. They decided not to hear... The merits uh, of the claim, the First Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment challenge to the very blatant partisan gerrymander in Wisconsin, because what they said was that the um, the, the plaintiffs there had not uh, established their standing to sue. Um, you know, it's sort of somewhat uh, a very kind of technical um, you know excuse for not you know approaching the heart of the matter. They said that the plaintiffs uh, were. Uh, were taking on a statewide challenge to the district, and what they needed to do was demonstrate that that individual plaintiffs had the right to sue, standing to sue, uh, by showing that their particular district um, had been manipulated in a way that um, diluted their ability uh, to effectively elect candidates of their choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, um, you know, the Common Cosby Ruscio plaintiffs, also we were consolidated with a different case, League of Women Voters of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Rusha, we were sort of saddled with um, with that uh, decision or that non-decision, I guess, yeah. as the case may be. They said, um, you know, we don't know that you have standing. You know, our our view is, you know, we have hit all the the important points um, that the majority opinion in that laid out. You know, we have a 
a statewide defendant, the North Carolina Democratic Party, on our side. We have established individual plaintiffs in every congressional district. We've described their individual harm within the district. Um, we think we, we basically have no guilty Whitford problem, however the Supreme Court said differently. They, so they sent it back to the three-judge um, panel uh, to, to rehear the issue of standing in our case. Mm. Um, and uh, fortunately, um, you, know, the, you know, I guess the one um, good thing moving forward is that I think the trial court, having seen what an egregious, um, arrogant move the North Carolina legislature made when they explicitly said they were going to draw these districts for partisan advantage, um, you know, they want to move quickly. Um, they, they, they have set very um, quick deadlines to, to get briefing done, July 11th, um, and hopefully um, turn this back around and get it back to the Supreme Court. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, it's, a, it's going to be a tougher road. We don't know what, who Justice Kennedy's replacement will be. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not going to you know, give up this fight. Um, you know, this, so, uh, so hopefully it'll be up back to the Supreme Court um, you know, sometime next term. And I want to uh, talk about that and that strategy and, and what to expect with uh, a new justice in instead of Kennedy. But this case in North Carolina, I mean, I read that quote from uh, State Rep. David Lewis, you know, admitting that this was done for partisan reasons. You have on your um, uh, on your Twitter feed uh, today, Dan Vicuña, uh, this comment from that same state rep, David Lewis, saying, quote, we have made clear this whole time in the court that politics was not the predominant factor. In the drawing of the 2016 congressional map, uh, one of many established criteria, his comment uh, earlier seems to be the exact opposite of that. No, am I missing something there? Uh, it sounds to me like your you know your classic Trump era alternative fact. I mean, he was he was on tape, very explicit, uh, saying that this would the intent of this map would be to give Republicans 10 of 13 seats. And now he's trying to walk that back. Um, you know, it's very strange, but it's consistent with you know the arrogance of the North Carolina legislature from day one. You know, mind you, that the reason why they redrew these maps in 2016, you know, late in a in a, in a census redistricting cycle is because their original map was struck down as an illegal racial gerrymander. Mm, um, they right. have had, they, they are currently sitting in districts themselves that have been determined to be an illegal racial gerrymander. They've had districts struck down, they, they've attempted to gerrymander local districts, um, a couple of cities in North Carolina, a school district, mm. to ensure Republican dominance. So, um, you know, the arrogance sort of knows no bounds, and, it's, and it's, very, it's indicative of the way legislators across the country view the power to manipulate these maps for their own advantage. And the, well, speaking of that, the North Carolina, the Wisconsin, the Maryland cases I mentioned that were all sort of uh, uh, punted to a later day, and we'll talk about that day in a second here with uh, swing vote Kennedy now uh, gone, but the court uh, this past week also approved these racial gerrymanders that were drawn in Texas, even though racial gerrymanders, unlike partisan gerrymanders, had been found unconstitutional by the court in the past. On what basis did the court say that these racial gerrymanders in Texas were just fine? And um, I guess I kind of want to ask, how is it they got Kennedy to go along with them? But at this point, we've seen, you know, he, he went with that right wing uh, uh, stolen majority uh, a whole lot in this past term. But w what happened to racial gerrymandering? I thought we all agreed at least that was unlawful. Yeah, I mean, it, it, before this case, the, the jurisprudence on racial gerrymandering was fairly strong. The justices 
are have seen that you know across the country you know, in the case of republican drawn districts mm-hmm. what republican led legislatures have tended to do is try to pack minority communities into a very very few number of districts so that they can w- get the candidate of their choice by an overwhelming margins you know 80, mm-hmm. winning 80% of the vote and but also to ensure that those communities have absolutely no power over surrounding districts you know to minimize the, their power into just one district or a couple of districts and um, you know, you saw that approach and also a cracking approach in Texas. You know, it was packing and cracking Latino communities, African-American communities, either into very few districts, both at the state house level and the U.S. house level, congressional level, um, or dividing them up to the extent that they could, you know, slice up a Latino community into several different districts, ensuring that they had, no, you know, not enough power in any single, in any single district, um, it was a very effective way um, for Republicans to maintain partisan control um, of the congressional delegation and the, the legislative delegation. So, um, you know, the, a trial court, uh, you saw through that. Um, a three-judge panel ruled those uh, districts to be unconstitutional under the Voting Rights Act and also the 14th Amendment Equal Protection. Um, they attempted to sort of address the most um, egregious portions of of the map, the, the, the worst outlier districts, um, quickly enough for the 2012 um, election. Um, however, many of those, the, the districts that had been racially gerrymandered were untouched. The court just didn't have the fact-finding time to get to them. Um, the legislature said, hey, this is great. This wasn't uh, that much of a change. Um, and they, in 2013, approved the districts, uh, voted the, the, trial, the, the redrawn districts in um, as the new dist- districts for Texas. And uh, but when the case went to a full trial, the the trial court said, "Well, we did our best to fix these for 2012, but there are still problems." Um, and the, the legislature, you know, is trying to make the had attempted to make the case and it successfully did so um, that somehow uh, there was some sort of magic happened between uh, their racial gerrymander of 2011 uh, and their approval of the, basically the same district two years later. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has issued a ruling in Abbott v. Perez, this Texas case, that mm-hmm. is going to have some serious implications down the road. Uh, they're calling on courts to give a lot of deference um, to legislators um, in a way that legislators don't, are, don't deserve. Um, they you know, will easily throw minority communities under the bus for partisan advantage. Um, and uh, today, you know, and when the Supreme Court issued this decision out of Texas, they said, um, "Well, we're still going to, you know, let them let them do their thing, give them deference, assume they have the best intentions, um, and it's going to make it a lot harder to challenge racial gerrymanders in the future." Which is, you know, really disturbing because we thought the fight was sort of on partisan gerrymanders, and it turns out that there's still fights over racial gerrymanders, uh, and just this notion. Uh, that both you heard uh, at the top there, both Ronald Reagan himself and Barack Obama decrying that, you know, that these legislators cannot fix the problem that they themselves created, that we need the courts to step in and take action here. And uh, these disappointing rulings over the past two weeks all came, I should note, when um, Justice Kennedy was still on the court. Uh, Much was, you know, riding on him agreeing to finally nix partisan gerrymanders, um, much less racial ones. He indicated in the past he'd like to do that, but now he didn't. Now he's gone. So what does this mean for the hopes of the Supreme Court at this point ever blocking partisan gerrymanders, Dan, or or worse, just, you know, approving them to be just fine as the uh, GOPers in the North Carolina case, for example, have admitted that they did? 
I, I, I mean, this this seems like very bad news is what I'm getting at. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think it is likely to make our path, you know, through litigation more difficult. Um, on the flip side, what it does serve, it, you know, it serves as a useful reminder that, um, you know, the courts will not necessarily save us. And so the, the, the good news is that there is amazing grassroots energy to address this problem, which, you know, when I first started doing this work just four years ago, mm-hmm. was a relatively sort of sleepy, quiet, you know, wonky issue that not a lot of people talked about. Right. And, and, but now what we're seeing, you know, is new energy to fix the problem through the states, uh, through um, ballot initiatives. Fortunately, there are states that have ballot initiatives. You know, in Ohio, just uh, last month, mm-hmm. voters approved really strong bipartisan protections to ensure that one party can't steamroll the other in the drawing of congressional districts. Um, they had already passed reforms a couple of years before on state legislative districts. Um, there's going to be a, there's a ballot initiative that was just given approval to go on the ballot in Michigan create an independent citizens redistricting commission which which the notion behind that is that you you find um, you know a, a number of people around the state who don't have direct conflicts of interest a, a direct personal stake in the drawing of districts give them strict criteria nonpartisan criteria um, to draw districts um, you know based on community input uh, the voting rights act uh, you, you know, prohibiting uh, the use uh, or giving it one party or candidate advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to see the same sort of model um, on the ballot in Colorado and Utah as well. Um, in Missouri, there's a, a, a good government measure that also include that includes ethics provisions, um, campaign finance reform, and the creation of a nonpartisan demographer to draw districts, mm-hmm. um, ensuring that um, there's partisan fairness. So it, it, although you know, the court rulings have been incredibly disappointing and the future is um, uncertain, uh, I think it, it, it will drive energy to do something at the grassroots, um, you know, increase energy that we've already seen this year. There has, uh, yeah, been, you know, despite federal court after federal court finding these uh, partisan gerrymanders in one state after another over the past year, uh, several years, to, you know, the lower courts finding them, federal courts finding them in, in violation of voting rights and the Constitution, the, it seems like the only gerrymandering ruling that did survived this year was the one brought in uh, in state court in Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Court tossed out the entire U.S. House map and drew a new one for 2018 after finding the GOP maps there also violated the state law and the state constitution. Does does this suggest that the state the the, the path forward here, uh, at least in the courts, could now be in in state courts, or is that because there was a special mechanism in Pennsylvania only in their uh, state law or state constitution that allowed uh, that allowed the case to be brought uh, brought to the state court? So, well, Pennsylvania was a fascinating case in terms of a litigation strategy because the Pennsylvania Constitution had a provision. Um, it was called their Free and Equal Elections Clause. It was one that, in fact, um, predated our, the U.S. Constitution. So mm. what, the, what the plaintiffs in that case made, the argument that they made was that, you know, this is, distinct and, uh, this is a distinct and stronger protection for Pennsylvania voters than even the federal First Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment um, provides. And, you know, Pennsylvania is one of the, one of the many states where um, the, the, politi- or the, uh, 
you know, number of Republicans and Democrats who have been elected does not in any way really reflect the, the, the makeup of the state. You know, Pennsylvania right. has most recently famously been a Democratic state and, you know, and went to President Trump in 2016. Uh, it's, you know, it's fairly split down the middle. Um, it's got a Democratic governor, you know, but one, one Republican senator. Mm-hmm. Um, and but so the way that they drew the congressional map was was a clear um, distortion of what the politics of the state are, giving Republicans districts far out of proportion to the vote that they get. And so the litigators said, "Look, we're going to go to the state supreme court. Um, we're going to um, litigate on this fair and equal elections uh, provision." And um, and they succeeded. The court said, uh, in fact, there. There was a you know distinct um, legal sort of history that went with the Pennsylvania Constitution's provision that provides stronger protections to the voters of the state, um, and they won. And Pennsylvania is getting a new congressional map this year. And you know in um, in the brief that the plaintiffs wrote, they noted that I think it's 18 or 19 states that have some sort of similar uh, provision. You know that provides right. uh, a protection for voters that's distinct from the federal First Amendment and. Fourteenth Amendment. So, um, I think you know, every you're going to, litigators will have to look at every state supreme court to determine whether um, you know it's a court that's likely to be friendly to this approach. Um, but I, it's definitely an option in more places than just Pennsylvania. Yeah, and I think it's going to have to be uh, given the uh, given the makeup of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court and where that seems to be headed. In Pennsylvania, of course, uh, many have said that uh, Democrats can expect to pick up three or four seats just by the redrawn maps that the uh, state Supreme Court has required them to use for 2018. But given that almost all of the other partisan and racial gerrymanders that uh, uh, have been put in place are still in place uh, during the uh, midterms in 2018, uh, how does that affect the likelihood of Dems being able to win back the House, even if there is a um, so-called blue wave, Dan Vicuña? Well, I'll just, you know, of course, for starters, have to, you know, lay out Common Cause's nonpartisan credentials. We right. You know, or institutionally, we're not rooting for anybody. But, you know, what we are rooting for is, you know, the House of Representatives to be representative of the politics, you know, of the country, for mm-hmm. each delegation to be representative of the politics, you know, uh, of the state, and that, for that to be done through a you know, process of drawing districts that is driven not by the needs of incumbent elected or party hacks, but by communities. And, um, you know, I, I think there is a high likelihood that the House of Representatives will, you know, not look like um, what the actual politics are of the country um, because there are so many um, districts and mm-hmm. so many states that have districts that are drawn by legislators you know, themselves. Um, in many cases, you have legislators probably now running in the districts that they that they help to, to craft. So, I mean, it's a definite problem when you don't see our democracy being responsive to um, changes in voter opinion. If there's a wave one way or the other, uh, voters should be able to express dissatisfaction um, in a way that actually affects change in who the representatives are. But when uh, gerrymander that just doesn't happen. And, and you know, I wasn't even asking uh, on a partisan basis. I'm looking back at, uh, you know, these elections where we've seen uh, in recent years uh, since the uh, 2010 redistricting where we're seeing, uh, you know, more voters actually turning out for Democrats and yet Republicans still hanging on to, to power in the U.S. House. So that's why I'm trying to get a sense of 
how big, if there is a so-called blue wave, and I am, uh, well, I'm still dubious about that, but if there is a, a so-called blue wave, I mean, how much bigger does it have to be in order to change the actual balance of the House? Is there any uh, numbers, uh, statistics, uh, political science on that to give a sense of what would actually be required at this point to flip the House? You know, I've seen estimates, uh, you know, that may range from about maybe 54 percent. The Democrats would have to win in terms of a popular vote majority to mm-hmm. actually win. It could be, it could be higher because you know, a lot of in a lot of these states, um, you know, the gerrymander uh, of the congressional delegation is quite a firewall. I mean, I, you saw something like this um, in Virginia, where mm-hmm. sort of the start of our, um, you know, the the kind of democratic reaction to the president, mm-hmm. um, you know, was in last year's Virginia elections and. Um, you know, Democrats were unable to win uh, the House of Delegates. I think they had something like a nine-point um, advantage in the popular vote mm-hmm. and came one seat shy of a, of a majority. So, I mean, it, gerrymandering absolutely serves as a firewall to Democratic um, accountability, to responsiveness to the, the views of the electorate. Now, the other uh, side of that, and i got just a minute or two left here, Dan, uh, but if, if Democrats do win back the U.S. House, uh, does that subsequently hurt future arguments that these districts are gerrymandered? Because, hey, after all, look, Democrats, uh, they took back the House anyway, so things couldn't be that bad. There's no real problem here when it comes to partisan gerrymanders in the U.S. Is that a concern? Yeah, a couple of quick, yeah sure, a couple of quick things on that point. I mean, I'd say it's very likely to take an extraordinary wave for Democrats to win a bare majority in the House. So I don't know that that is any demonstration that mm. um, you know, the manipulation of the process isn't a problem. But, but, but secondly, kind of most importantly, you know, Common Cause's primary interest in the redistricting reform is that it is not a community, people-driven process. You know, sort of the, 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 the partisan outcome of the district is more of a secondary concern, but the primarily why we want to see independent commissions or nonpartisan standards or um, models where you know, sort of nonpartisan staff draw districts mm-hmm. is less about those electoral outcomes than it is about the public having a meaningful say in their own representation. Right. So, um, so that's sort of our goal going forward, and you, we're excited to see that, it, at least in a handful of states, regardless of how badly things are going on, on the litigation front, in a handful of states you're seeing some real movement. Last question, uh, Dan. Uh, what, if anything, can people, the, the voters here who are being denied uh, equal representation, uh, equal protection rights here, uh, what can the voters actually do to help in this fight? Above and beyond showing up in droves to uh, to vote this year and in 2020. I, you know, in in a lot of states, there are active redistricting reform campaigns happening. If you go to commoncause.org/redistricting, um, you can see some of the uh, some of our leaders who uh, who are in charge working with um, you know community organizations, League of Women Voters, churches. Um, labor in some places, business interests that that want to see the process improved and, and become fair. Uh, you know, they are active on many fronts, whether it's uh, through through ballot initiatives, knocking on doors, collecting signatures, um, or going. You know, in the case where there's not a ballot initi- initiative option, there's public education campaigns, community events where we're te- you know sort of teaching people what the problem is of gerrymandering and what some um, relevant solutions might be. So I think if you can. Get in touch with um, you know, one of those uh, reform campaigns um, that are trying to shame legislators do the right thing or, or get some things passed.
passed on the ballot, I think it's a real step in the right direction. Dan Vicuña, National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause. Check out their work. You can support their efforts there at commoncause.org slash redistricting. You can also follow Dan on the uh, on the Twitters at Dan Vicuña. That's V-I-C-U-N-A. Dan, apologies if I uh, botched pronouncing your name throughout uh, today's show, but I greatly appreciate you joining us and making all of this uh, a little bit clearer as we move forward. You got there in the end with my name, so thank you. (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Okay, quick break, and back with one more story on uh, on North Carolina and uh, voting. And speaking of those crazy Republican legislators there, what they're trying to do now. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Nothing could be finer than to be in Carolina in the morning. Oh, I love Val Jolson. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Is that song, uh, do we know if it's about South Carolina or North Carolina? I have no idea. I always assumed it was South Carolina, but you know what? Uh, The way North Carolina is behaving now, they might as well be South Carolina at this point. If there's any state, if there's any state in the union where voters need to show up and toss them out, uh, it's got at the state legislative level this year, it has got to be North Carolina. They just need to be removed, removed and repla- repeal and replace the North Carolina state legislature. legislature. Yeah. Um, so North Carolina's photo ID voting restriction law. You remember that? Uh, it was actually a huge voter suppression law, not just photo ID, but all sorts of voter suppression stuff that was struck down by the state Supreme Court in North Carolina. A year or two ago, after they determined that it was specifically written by the Republicans there in the state legislature to, quote, target minority voters with surgical precision. It was specifically meant in order to depress the votes of minority voters. The law was found to be unconstitutional under the state constitution. So Republicans who still now control the state legislature have come up with a new scheme They want to put it on the ballot as a constitutional amendment, put photo ID voting restrictions on the ballot this year. And uh, as we go to air, it looks like they are just about uh, one step away from being able to do that for 2018. It looks like the measure to require a very specific type of photo ID this these type of laws disproportionately affect minorities and students and the poor. Uh, who tend to lean Democratic because it requires the type of ID that they do not have. 
in order to be able to cast a vote at all. So it looks like this is going to be on the uh, 2018 ballot in this crucial swing state of North Carolina, which Barack Obama won by a very slim margin in 2008. Romney then won by a very slim margin in 2012. Trump won by a slim margin in 2016. So this is a very close state. And, uh, you know, if they can peel off a few voters, a few Democratic voters, that's going to help Republicans a whole lot. So um, there was uh, a letter to the Raleigh News and Observer this week, which points out yet another way in which voters, in this case, North Carolinians, uh, can be prevented from voting thanks to these type of strict photo ID voting restrictions. Thomas Baer of Chapel Hill writes in to say, having an official voter ID may sound reasonable. Probably 90 percent of North Carolina citizens already have or can easily get one. But what about the remaining 10 percent? He says we ran into problems two years ago when we tried to get an ID from the DMV for my brother who was not in good health and needed an ID to file power of attorney forms. My brother and I immigrated to the U.S. when we were seven and 11 years old, receiving our citizenship certificates some years later. He says, I still have this document. However, my brother, who went through some rough times, lost his citizenship papers because his birth certificate stated that he was born in Switzerland. The DMV needed proof of his U.S. citizenship. They brought his honorable discharge papers from the Air Force. Yes, he was in the Air Force. His transcript from the University of Illinois showing his Social Security number, but nothing satisfied the North Carolina DMV requirement to get this ID. He says we knew his citizenship application number and could have gotten a duplicate, but this would have cost us over $500, at which point we just gave up. How many North Carolina citizens will encounter similar problems in getting IDs, he asks. If, in fact, this uh, requirement is added to the state constitution, since lawmakers couldn't do it with laws, they're going to change the state constitution if they can get away with it. Hey, voters in North Carolina, don't let them. All right, that's it. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Dan Vicuña of Common Cause, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You're welcome. Though we ask you to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves to continue the good fight as long as we can. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. See you there. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.